So friends, today we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. We're currently at the end of Ephesians chapter 5. And as we saw last week, uh, Paul has talked about a lot of things, right, from chapter 1 to chapter 4. But starting last week, we're entering into this section in the book of Ephesians where Paul's addressing uh, something that it's often called the Christian household code. Okay, there are tons of different household codes back then about how a family should be run, and this is Paul saying the Christian worldview of it. Okay? Um, the Christian household code, code is pretty much the Bible's instructions about how Christians, in other words, people who believe that their sins have been paid for and washed clean by what Jesus did for them on the cross, these people, Paul's saying, should run their household differently than other people. Why? Because if you believe that you are an undeserving sinner who's been eternally saved by someone else's sacrifice, that's going to change the way that you interact with people, especially with those at home. Okay? So here's the household code for those who believe in the gospel. And out of all the relationships that exist within the household, Paul, as we saw last week and we'll see again this week, chooses to talk about first the relationship between the husband and the wife. Before he gets to the parents and the children and every other relationship at home, he talks about the husband and the wife first. Why? Because this is the most important relationship in the Christian household or in the household in general. The health of your marriage will affect the health of your entire home. Okay? And we broke it down to do different sermons. Last week, Paul started off by addressing the the wife's role first in verses 21 to 22. Sorry, 21 to... Twenty-four, uh, my bad. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the husband's role that you can find in verses twenty-five to thirty-three. Okay, what is a Christian husband's role in marriage? Which, by the way, I think is like the top three questions I get as a pastor from Christian men, both in CCC and just in general. They all ask, Tez, what would you say, what is, or what does the Bible say is or will be my responsibility as a Christian husband? Like, what am I supposed to do? Okay, how do I, uh, what's my role in my marriage? How do I lead my family well? And by the way, to prepare for this sermon, what I did is I conducted a mini research just for you guys, and I asked a few husbands in Covenant City Church, and I said, hey, generally, if you were to ask just husbands in Indonesia, about what they think their role is in their marriage, what do you think they'll generally say? And they all agreed that the first thing almost all husbands in Indonesia would say that their role is in marriage is to what? There you go. See, I don't even need to do the research. It's just everyone's to provide financially. Like, that's the main thing. Someone actually said... They'll, say, they'll tell you this test. They say, number one, they've got to provide financially. Number two, they've got to spend time with their family, which money buys them this. Number three, they've got to educate their kids, which money buys them this. Number four, they've got to meet the family's practical needs, which money buys them this. Number five, they've got to be able to travel with their family, which money buys them this. And number six, they've got to be able to reduce the stress in their family, which money buys them this. And look, men, I'm not saying that financial provision isn't a part of your role in marriage. Of course it is, (laughs) obviously, okay? Do that, don't neglect that. But what I think what we've done is we've taken that chapter of our role 
and turned it into the whole book. And that's why I want to propose to you that a lot of our marriages, if we're honest, they function like they work, like they're operational. But if we're honest, both of us and our spouses feel that it lacks warmth and beauty and glory that deep inside we know Christian marriages should have. Why is that, husbands? You've been financially providing for your wife and kids well, beyond well, perhaps. But why is there still this nagging feeling there? Well, it's because, husbands, Paul explains here, that your main KPI in marriage, okay, your main goal cannot be bought with money. And unless you see what that is, your marriage will always lack those things, okay? What is it then? What is our goal as husbands? What's our main role God's given us? Well, let's get into it. This is the word of God taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus says the Lord. Husbands, husbands-to-be, if you're called to marriage, here's your job that God's called you to do. First, you must love your wife as Christ loved the church. Second, by nourishing her into holiness and splendor as you reenact the gospel story. Okay? You've got to love your wife as Christ loved the church by nourishing her into holiness and splendor as you reenact the gospel story. Let's start with the first point. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. So, Paul starts off his instructions to the husbands here with an analogy. Okay, look at verse 25, 26. He said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, the thing about analogies that you've got to keep in mind is that they're analogies, meaning you can't take them too far, right? Because at some point they break down. For example, if I say, Man, I'm as thirsty as a horse. I'm not actually saying that I have four legs or that I want to drink water from a bucket. You know, it's an analogy. It's only meant to point out one thing, which is I'm really, really thirsty. Okay? So same thing here. When Paul says in verse 25, 26, that husbands, you may love your wife, love your wife as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her or sacrificed himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Paul's not saying that husbands... You are Jesus Christ. 
and that your love for your wife and your sacrifice for your wife is what's gonna save and cleanse her from her sins. Okay, that, that is not what he's saying. The Bible is clear that there's only one person's love and sacrifice that can cleanse us from any of our sins, and whose love and sacrifice is it? It's Jesus's on the cross, where he died for those who would receive it. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying here is that husbands, you must love your wives with the same tenacity, with the same rigor, with the same commitment that Jesus had when he climbed on that cross and died for you. That's what he's saying. That's the level of tenacity we must have. And here's what's interesting. Husbands, nowhere else in the Bible does God call you to love anything else with this level of intensity. Skip to verses 31 and 32 in your passage. Paul says that husbands and wives are one flesh like Jesus is with his people. You can read the Bible up and down all you want, as much as you want. You will not find another human relationship in the Bible described as one flesh analogous, analogous to Jesus with his people. You won't find it except for the relationship between the husband and the wife. Which means, husbands, that nothing on earth should come even close to your love and your commitment to your wife. Not your job, not your money, not your reputation, And with the risk of being misunderstood in an Asian context, I must say it anyways, not even your parents and your children. Don't get me wrong. I love my children with my life. I love my parents deeply. I love you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ. But the Bible never describes you and your parents, and you and your children, or you and other brothers and sisters in Christ as one flesh, like Jesus is with the church. That description is reserved only for you and your spouse. This means, husbands, that when you said I do to your wife, however many days or decades ago, what you did there is that you made a commitment to God that the woman who stood in front of you on that day will from then on out be the sole purpose of your life. She does not revolve around your career. She does not revolve around your reputation. She does not revolve around your finances. She does not revolve around your assets. And she does not for goodness sake, revolve around your free time. Instead, all of those things must revolve around what? Around her? What does that mean, Tess? Does that mean that I have to say yes to every Tokopedia purchase that she makes? (laughs) Like, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, whenever I get paid, 10% goes to the church and 90% goes to her? Like, what's what's the application here? 
that I can never disagree with her or address issues that I see she has in her life? No, okay? Of course not. I hope not. <laughs> That's not what Paul means here, okay? For us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, so what does it mean then? Well, let's take a look at Paul's words again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by, washing, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What in the world did all that mean? Okay, this imagery that Paul wrote here of washing with water, of cleansing, of presenting her without blemish, all this actually refers to a specific ceremonial act that would have happened back then during wedding days for the bride. And it's something that's called the bridal bath. You know how today brides-to-be would use professional makeup artists to help them get ready for their wedding day in the morning? That didn't exist back then, okay? What they had instead were actually the moms or the sisters or very close friends, an entourage of women that would actually help her, the bride, get ready for her wedding day. They would even bathe her. They would brush her hair. They would adorn her with jewels and flowers and fragrant perfume and even put on the wedding gown. And this would actually be like a highlight for the bride. You know, it's a sweet moment for them. It's core memory kind of meaningful. And what Paul's saying here is that husbands, the way you treat and love your wife in your marriage should be filled with such intentionality, with such care, with such tenderness, to where it's as if you're extending the sweet bridal bath moment for them throughout the whole marriage. Care for her, tend to her, cherish her, love her. Why? To what purpose? To what end? Because as you do that, Paul says, God will use that effort to adorn your wife, not with jewelry, not with flowers, not with fragrant perfume, but with what Paul says here? With holiness, with sanctification, which is just a fancy word for growth in Christ-like character, so that she would be without blemish. And there it is, husbands. That's the task. That is your assignment from God as a husband. You are to be a part of God's agenda of adorning your wife with Christ-like character through deep care and tenderness, analogous to the love and care that she got the morning of her wedding day. Every day. You know, when I was in grade school, I got this assignment, I remember this so clearly from my teacher, and I remember I put so much effort into it, you know, more than any other assignments I've done before, and when I handed it to her, I was so proud, it was like this thick document, you know, well-presented, laminated, everything, matching fonts. And a few days later, I got the assignment back, and I was excited to see the results, and the teacher said, Tez, this was great work, I can see you put a lot of effort into it, but it was actually the wrong assignment. She said, and I think what happened was, is that I mixed my notes, 
And I ended up doing an assignment for a different class that wasn't even due yet, and I gave it to this teacher for some reason, because I was in middle school, you know? That's what kids do. Great effort, she said. Wrong assignment. Husbands, you can work down to your bones to financially provide for your wife. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Please do that, okay? Provide for your wife financially. But if you turn that one chapter into the whole book, when you see God in heaven, you know what he'll say? He'll say, great effort, wrong assignment. Wrong assignment. Read the assignment again carefully. I have tasked you with joining me in adorning your wife toward holiness and Christ-likeness. Have you done that? And the issue is, many of us don't know how. And I get it. Just like in our jobs, we tend to do the responsibility that we feel most competent to do, and we lean towards the responsibility that we feel like we're good at. And I get why we would focus on that particular aspect, but that's not the whole task. How do we adorn our wives in such a way Let's go to our second point. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church by nourishing her into holiness and splendor. Okay. The reason why I think this command might produce some anxiety for both husbands and wives is because the application here is, is a bit unclear, right? Like, like, how do we do this exactly? What does this mean? You know, am I supposed to be like some kind of like teacher to my wife? Or like, am I supposed to be this spiritual guru? You know, or is this more like a coach slash trainer kind of thing? Or is this more like a counselor slash therapist kind of role? Like, like what's exactly the role and responsibilities here? Well, thankfully, Paul does give us somewhat of a picture here in verses 28 to 30. And the picture that Paul gives us here about this role is not analogous to how a teacher would relate to a student or how a spiritual guru would relate to a pupil or how a coach would relate to an athlete, or how a CEO would relate to an employee, or how even a therapist would relate to a client, okay? Look at verses 28 to 30 again with me. The role of the husband here is analogous, Paul says, to how a head would relate to its body. And again, be careful. Analogies analogies can't be taken too far, right? Okay, this doesn't mean that the husbands decide everything, like the head decides where to go, and the wife just kind of follows like, like the body. That's not Paul's emphasis here. Nor, as we saw in our liturgy earlier, is not the emphasis of Christ's headship whenever he's called the head of the church. The specific head-to-body relationship that Paul emphasized here is not one of directing primarily, but one of nourishing and cherishing. Let's read it again. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife as himself, uh, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but what? Nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Okay, so the question earlier was, how do I participate in God's work of adorning my wife toward holiness and Christ-likeness, we asked. The answer is by nourishing and cherishing her. It's like, okay, but that's still a bit confusing, Tez, because... It's counterintuitive, right? When I think of verbs, 
or when I think of helping someone change and grow in anything, toward anything, the verbs that I think about is not nourishing and cherishing. The verbs I think about is correcting, fixing, right? Rebuking, directing. Like I, I, I get how correcting someone would result in growth. I get how rebuking someone could result in change. I get how directing someone could result in growth. But I still don't see the connection between how nourishing and cherishing, those two verbs, could result in someone's change and growth. Well, let me, first, let me first say this. I don't think, husbands, that nourishing and cherishing here means that you can't ever point out or direct or rebuke areas in your wife's life that might require it. Just like we saw last week, that wives, for you to submit to your husbands, does not mean that you can't ever rebuke them or identify areas of growth in their life either. Okay, that's not what this means. Both husband and wife should pinpoint, identify areas of growth in the other person's life. What Paul's explaining here is the how. How do you do that? You do that by nourishing and cherishing, meaning this, I think, that once you've pinpointed an issue in your wife's life, husbands, don't immediately think in terms of fixing the behavior, but rather healing the heart. And let me just say this. I've checked my motivation and my own presuppositions here, and I don't think that I've concluded this because we live in a culture that's so fixated on being therapeutic-centric. Okay? We do. I don't think that's why I landed here. I really do think this is what Paul meant by nourishing and cherishing. And I think it's best explained with a story. And I promise that I've asked my wife's permission before sharing any of this. Okay? I've went through it with her. She said, okay. In the first few years of our marriage, and she would tell you this too, okay, there existed in her heart a particularly high resistance and suspicion towards most authority figures in her life, but especially towards male authority figures, to where we even had a hard time getting in the Word together. We couldn't read the Bible together. It would just be awkward and sensitive. And, and I think... I made every single mistake known to man in how I addressed this issue. I went from being, let's call it, an insensitive behavior modifier, okay, where I would just pretty much tell her, stop it. Stop doing that. I remember one time she was working at an office in Memphis, Tennessee, and she came home in tears one day because her boss said something that, that I... I'd, Thought wasn't a big deal, but to her, it was a huge deal. And oh man, I still remember what I said, because I still regret it till this day. I remember it was afternoon, and I told her in the day, in, the, in that day in the living room, as she was crying, that the tears she was shedding are sinful, because it shows that she hasn't fully put her identity in Christ. <laughs> okay, this is the wrong example, okay? Don't... I don't think that's what Paul meant when he said nourish and cherish. <laughs> but then there was also a period of time in our marriage, maybe I overcorrected, I don't know, where I swung the pendulum way far to the other extreme where I became, let's call it, an anxious avoider. So every time you know, she would react to my assertiveness or to my leadership, I would feel overly guilty about myself. And every time there's an issue with some authority figure in her life, I would avoid addressing it at all. 
Also probably not what Paul meant here by nourishing and cherishing. Now before I continue, let me ask you, what commonality do you think an insensitive behavior modifier has with an anxious avoider? What commonality is there? They both mainly focus on what? The external quick fix, you see. The insensitive behavior modifier wants her to stop crying, fixed, done. The anxious avoider wants her to not cry at all, ignored, done. It's all about the external behavior. But neither of those things cherishes and nourishes your spouse toward Christ. So, through much grace from my wife, through a number of great Christian marriage counselors and God's mercy and patience, I finally repented, or I'm continually repenting, from what? From my idol of efficiency. I no longer worshiped efficiency, or I'm trying not to. And instead, I realized that this high resistance and suspicion that she has toward authority isn't just a behavior to be fixed. It's a wound to be healed, and it's a story to be known. Which is when I put the effort into getting to know my wife's story more. And if you do get to know it, you'll see that it's actually completely understandable why she would have her guard up against authority figures in her life. One, there are power dynamics within her own family that wasn't helpful. But two, she grew up in various legalistic and frankly misogynistic male-dominant cultures around certain what's called often the Bible Belt areas in, in a particular country, which impacted her with a, a, a twisted view of authority, deeply. I remember a story she told me that during class one day, her and her close friend named Mark, they're kind of like the class clowns, right? And if you know my wife, then you know she's got jokes, right? And one day she was messing, you know, joking around uh, with Mark and got in trouble because she was joking around during class time. And her teacher made her leave the classroom and told her, to, told her to stand outside alone until she was ready to talk to her. Not Mark, just her. And when the teacher came out, she asked, hey, like, why am I the only one getting punished? Like, Mark was kind of in this too. And the teacher pretty much said, well, because, Tati, one day you'll be a wife. And this is a good lesson of how you can submit to male authority. Implying, implying, didn't explicitly say this, implying, but Mark wasn't being punished because that's not really a lesson that he needed to learn as a man. And that's just one example of the ecosystem she was in for 23 plus years of her life before we met. And I came to realize that this issue she had is beyond just a problem to be fixed, it's a wound to be healed and a story to be known. I can't just tell her to stop it, just change now, you know? Pray, pray her out of it. Memorize these 10 verses. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. I must nourish and cherish her. How? By living out and exemplifying, at least try my best to, a biblical, safe, and trustworthy kind of leadership over and over and over and over again to where her heart can be slowly convinced that the self-defense mechanisms she's needed to hold on to her whole life towards past authorities, she no longer needs here. She can put them down. Why? Because in this family, trusting someone does not mean losing yourself. 
Now, have I done that well? Probably not. And my wife's been much more Christ-like that I have in bearing with me and being patient with me as I make mistakes and stumble my way towards trying to cherish and nourish her well toward Christ. But that's what Paul is saying here. We've got to try and shoot for husbands. That's what it means to cherish and nourish your wife toward Christ-likeness instead of just rebuking your wife or guilting your wife or manipulating your wife or commanding her toward it. It's beyond that. But man, Paul, the original readers would have said at this moment, that is such an inefficient way to run a household. Because as we talked about last week, every other household code of the day would have viewed the home simply as this practical entity that exists merely to help the husband, the father, get things done, you know, till the farm, work the job, build the career, grow the empire, accumulate the wealth. Other household codes that would originate from Plato and Aristotle's thinking, mainly, would be filled with techniques of how the father and the husband can best get the other family members in line. It would read more like a managerial handbook for a CEO. So the husbands of the day would have read this and said, Paul, don't tell me how to nourish my wife towards Christ-likeness, okay? I just want to know how I can direct my wife toward productivity. That's, that's what I want, because that's the point of marriage, right, Paul? As, unfortunately, I would, must say that many families still think so today as well. The point of marriage is to be efficient, productive, get things done, right? And Paul is saying here in verses 31 to 33, no, it's not. That is not the point of marriage. And it's just like us humans, isn't it? To take something that's meant for godliness and beauty and make it pragmatically productive for self-serving purposes. That's not what it's for. It's never been about that. Okay, so then what is the original purpose of marriage then? Last point. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church by nourishing her into holiness and splendor as you reenact the gospel story. Look at verse 31. Paul ends the marital section of the household code here by going back to the Old Testament and quoting the book of Genesis. That's what verse 31 is. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But then, in verse 32, Paul does this big reveal. And he says, this mystery that I, about, you know, in Genesis that I just quoted, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You know, Paul's saying here, no one would have figured this out on their own because it's a mystery. But actually, the reason why God originally created the institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, he says. The point of that is so that we can be pointed to the ultimate love story between Jesus and his people that he died for. That's what Genesis 2 is about. You know how great movies and stories, if they're good enough, they often get remade over and over and over again throughout the years, like I don't know, The Great Gatsby. 
or Jungle Book, you know, or Robin Hood. I don't know. These stories are, are repeated over and over again, remade over and over again. And each time it's remade, it would have a bit of a different twist to it, a bit of a different feel to it, because throughout the decades, there are different directors that directed it, different actors that play in it, different you know, cinematographers that shot it. But that despite the variety between these stories and these different versions of the movie, the general storyline, the main point, the main narrative of each of these movies, they remain the same. In the same way, Paul is saying here, every single marriage on earth, every single marriage in this room might have different twists and turns to it, different struggles about it, different joys. Why? Because it has different people directing it, executing it. But the general storyline should remain the same. The main point, the main narrative should stay the same. What is the main storyline that every single marriage here is meant to point to and reenact and remake? The gospel story. That's the point. The love that Jesus had for his people is meant to be made HD clear by the way you treat your spouse. And let me ask you, in this great love story between Jesus and his people, what was the first scene? You know, action. What was the first scene? Which character initiated the story first? Jesus did. And earlier, who did Paul say was analogous to Jesus in the marital relationship? The husband is. So naturally, Paul ends here in the passage in verse 33 by addressing the husband first. Husbands, he said, initiate the story. Start the process. Love your wife as yourself. As yourself, Paul says in verse 33. What does that mean? Remember the golden rule that Jesus said? You know, love your neighbor as yourself. This is that, but on steroids. Why? Because your wife isn't just a neighbor, Paul says. She is yourself. You must love her as yourself. Each husband should love their wife as himself. She is, in other words, your ultimate neighbor. And how convicting is that for us, husbands? who spends so much time and energy throughout the day loving and caring for so many different people out there, but then we come home to our ultimate neighbor and give her the scraps and leftovers. Don't give her your scraps. Give her your best. Initiate the process. Put in the effort. Put in the time. Put in the creativity to get to know her story. Study the topology of her soul. Map it out. Find out where the wounds are, where the treasures are, where the bright landscapes are, where the dark valleys are. And then based on that understanding of her, make it your main assignment in life to nourish and cherish her toward holiness and Christ-likeness with the same tenacity and commitment that Jesus had for you, husbands, when he gave you his all and climbed upon that cross in order to make you holy and blameless through his death. That's the first scene of the gospel love story.
But then what happens next? The church, his people, the recipient of this great love, does what? They respond with reverence, with honor, with respect for the one who died for them on the cross. Which is why Paul then addresses the wives here in verse 33 at the end and says, after the husbands do all this, wives, see to it that you respect him. See to it that you respect him. Not out of fear or punishment, not out of intimidation, but because this man has made it his life goal to participate in God's work toward your sanctification by nourishing and cherishing you with gentleness and care. Look, let's end here. I've been married for almost 14 years, and some of you here have been married for much, much longer than that. So let's, let's cut the nonsense, okay? And let's skip to the part where we all know that this is much easier said than done. Husbands, your wives aren't always going to be the easiest people to cherish. And wives, your husbands, are not always going to be the easiest people to respect and honor. But if the main point of marriage is to reenact the long-suffering that Christ had for you on that cross, then these moments of long-suffering with your spouse aren't setbacks. What are they? They're opportunities to show the world the love that Jesus had for you on that cross. It's an opportunity to show the world that the guy who hung on the cross for you didn't do it because you deserved it. Didn't do it because you checked off all his lists. Didn't do it because you've earned it. He did it because he loved you. Reenact that love towards your spouse. Not because they always deserve it, but because you love them. And because the love story written by that man who died for you on his cross is worth retelling over and over and over again in your marriage. And if both parties commit to making their marriage about reenacting this story, your marriage won't just function or work or operate. It'll be filled, the Bible does promise with warmth, with substance, and with glory. Let's pray. Father, how, fall, how far do we fall short in living up to the assignments you've given us in life? Husbands, we have not loved our wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, we have not, uh, and wives have not honored their husbands in such a way that uh, Christ calls them to here. We're all sinners. We all fail. We all have anxieties in the application of this command. We all have questions and different nuances. We wish a 40-minute sermon could have said, at least I do. But Father, I pray and trust that your spirit will give wisdom to everyone who is here who understand it's not as straightforward as this. Give them the understanding 
and the wisdom to know what your will is, as you said earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, that each husband and wife, each man and woman, can come to you and apply Bess's command in the very specific and unique situation that they're in. But regardless, Father, this is your command nonetheless. Help your church do so. May this, may this be our battle cry to not only proclaim the gospel through the pulpit on Sunday mornings and with our words in Bible studies or community groups, but with the way we love our spouse every single day. May this kind of tenacity and endurance be given to us by the Spirit because by now we all should know it does not originate from inside of us. We don't have it, so we beg you for it. Give it to your church that we may live our lives in such a way that reenacts your love story till we breathe our last breath. In Jesus' name we pray.